I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening some friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners... Because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, we're here for a special episode of Poem Talk in the Arts Cafe of the Kelly Writers House, joined by an in-person audience whose presence, I hope, they will confirm right now by putting their hands together. Thank you. Thank you. To, that's so sweet of you. They're, let the record show they're eating lunch while applauding. It's not an easy thing to do. You have to do some lap work to do that. Um, and your, your applause is going to help me welcome our poem talkers today. Yes, first we are honored to have with us Tyrone Williams. Tyrone Williams, everybody. <laughs> Among whose many books of poetry are on spec. The Hero Project of the Century, Adventure of Pi, CC, and Howell, who teaches literature and theory at Xavier University in Cincinnati, who's the editor of African American Literature Revised Edition, and whose new book is As Is, Poems About Islam and the West that Form a Meditation on the Vacillation Between Betweenness and Amongness. And by William J. Billy Joe Harris over here. who has been writing a chapbook um, of imitations and afters of uh, Sappho and Catullus. Sappho, he deems a blues poet, and Catullus a vernacular poet, whose chapbook's in the works, uh, and I'm, he'll have to update us on this. Uh, the last I checked included one consisting of Lucifer poems, who, in the, who is in the process of writing poems in car- with cartoons, has been studying Patchen, Kenneth Patchen, William Blake, who for many years a professor at Kansas is now a Brooklyn, New York resident, and continues as a member of the jazz faculty seminars at Columbia University, and by Alden Nielsen, right over there, Alden Nielsen. (laughs) Poet, critic, editor, literary historian, whose books include What I Say, Innovative Poetry by Black Writers in America, Trey, an amazing, totally amazing book of poems, a brand new beggar, poems of and about blues travelers. You didn't hear this from me, CLR... C.L.R. James, A Critical Introduction, Black Chant, Languages of African-American Postmodernism, and recently with Laura Vrana, has co-edited, we are happy to say, and he's holding it up, The Collected Poems of Lorenzo Thomas. Yes, Wesleyan, October 2019. What an achievement. And we are joined also by Erica Hunt. Poet, activist, grantor, former grantor, institution builder, leader, who works at the forefront of experimental poetry and poetics, critical race theory, and feminist aesthetics, whose books also include Arcade, Peace Logic, Local History, and Time Slips Right Before Your Eyes, and whose essays include, among many, Notes for an Oppositional Poetics, and whose newest publication will be, hear it now, Jump the Clock, New and Selected Poems. Yes, congratulations. So, yeah. Erica, thank you so much. Congrats on the new and selected. Thanks so much for making the journey here. Yes, 
My pleasure. It's good to see you. Alden, as always, hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm sorry. Uh, we're sort of evil twins. We're, we are both the Kelly professor of something. Different yeah. Kellys. We're the Kelly professor yeah. at Penn State. But we're and mirror Penn. images. I'm the and larger, fatter image of the... <laughs> we're both photographers. Anyway, thank you, Al, for thank complicating. You. Thank You're you. supposed to just say, hi, Al. It's nice to be here. <laughs> I haven't said hi for 37 years. Okay, now, so. sorry. <laughs> Billy Joe Harris, it's good to see you as always. I've, I've listened to our last conversation, and at that beginning of the last conversation, I noted that you had just then... T- turned 75 which is astonishing to me and then i said well. <laughs> you look you look a year younger every year when i see you and i think it's happened again right don't we don't we have a response to this <laughs> hi Hi, how are you? And Tyrone Williams, good to see you as always. Thank you for making the trip. Well, today we have gathered here to talk about a poem by Erica Hunt that is included in her book, Time Slips Right Before Your Eyes, published by Belladonna in 2006. And there's a kind of new version, different publication story that I'm sure will emerge, but the one I have is Belladonna 2006. Uh, The poem that we're going to talk about is called Should You Find Me? And it is the piece with which this powerful book of family history concludes. Erica's fabulous pen sound page, which includes recordings of her readings and performances dating back to, Erica, guess what the earliest one is? 82. Yeah, close. It's Mm -hmm. 1983 is the Mm -hmm. earliest recording. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as recent, these recordings on pen sound, uh, as March 2019, This page happens not to include a reading of this poem, so we're asking Erica to read it now, and it will be added not just to this podcast, but to the Penn Sound page. So here is Erica Hunt herself performing Should You Find Me. Should you find me? Should you find me? I'm the short one on the left, knocking brown against green hills, a fleck in the crowd, not to be blinked on or peeled, coming off with the tape. Should you find me, would you have a word for me? Or do I go forward on faith for a new word, a different spelling? Where would you find me? At the top of residential grids, in the teardowns and the private cul-de-sacs, or at the bottom, in the nameless streets where pavement dwellers tap into the futility lines for brown-out power? Where would you find me? Oh, which kidnap do you mean, you ask? In security chambers handcuffed, the soundless zeros maximum cancellations of futurity? In the mall's maw thrall of fear-numbing card-bearing youth? or in abandoned villages among smoking ruins patrolled by Uzi-besotted soldiers. When the codes change, does the energy suck remain the same? Would I recognize my name in the voice calling from the burning bush? Would I hold my breath and hope it wasn't me being called from the burning bush? And if it isn't me, who else will carry the tune. If you should find me, 
Would I have to relearn my own name, talk to the letters in the alphabet one by one, my new best friends? Would I have to invent spillover? There's got to be more days in the year. Birthdays shouldn't be rationed. We need new shoes. We need to replace perpetual war footing. If you should find me, does that mean the pop quiz in the picture? Rebus times pantomime tariffs pygmy? Would I button down? Do fewer wrinkles in the forehead automatically lead to new wrinkles in the knees? If you should find me, could I stop doing, 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 doing? Red onions, beets, radishes, peppers. Then who would restore the color to crunch? Everyone knows it's not easy to hold things still. The red and its expectation, the bell and its clapper, the beat to its sugar. Should you find me, how could I miss? Who would I miss? Who would miss me? If you should find me, I would measure as it has taken me time to learn how. Practicing a long view. The pinch, a pause, punctuation in the moment. Thank you, Erica. Thank you. Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> indeed. What a When we chose to discuss this poem, it struck me that it was, or maybe it was Tyrone who said in an email, this, this seems to really um, be a, a summation of a great coda to the whole chapbooks, which, and so no doubt we'll be talking about that, but let's focus on the poem first. Um, should you find me as a refrain, Alden first and then Erica, let's talk about the you in should you find me this is a this is a really powerful almost visionary you alan you first any thoughts on you <laughs> i'm going to cheat again since we were cautioned against doing many lectures i was actually going to start before that with the verb tense because yes. uh, i've been fascinated for decades now by erica hunt's fascination with time and tense uh, those of you who don't have a copy of the poem in front of you don't know that she actually changed the verb tense of one of the words in the very last stanza as she was reading it right now but um should, would, and could all appear, and of course they have to do with the you, which we'll circle back to when she corrects me in a minute, but um, <laughs> you know, they're all conditionals, they're all future-oriented, but this is one of the oddest openings in all of Erica's work, or really anybody's work. Um, if it had started out, would you find me, the sense would be that you might, at some point in the future, go looking for her. Um, should implies a different kind of conditionality, but the surprise is that she's already been found in the very next clause because you're already, should you find her, you've already found this photograph and you're looking to her. And in fact, if you've been following her work, she's been up to this kind of strange exploration of language and time all along. And I believe she's already invented a, a term for this verb tense in the first book, surplus future imperfect. Um, <laughs> which I think also makes the you to, to, to cut Finally get to Al's question, yeah. yes. 
But I, I think this makes the U an, an interesting case of a future conditional as well. I've, I've talked for many years now about the uh, the future interior in African American literature, and of course we could go back to the um, the verb noun uh, uh, binaries in Stein and Baraka and so many others over the years. But uh, I really want to kind of hold on this question of this the futurity of this U who is going to come and look for, if I can paraphrase Elijah Muhammad, the lost found. Erica, thoughts on the U? I mean, there's so many ways U works. One, of course, would be uh, readers of this book or anyone else who's not part of this family could also refer to oneself. So how would you deal with yeah, that? Yeah, this, this poem is about time, and it is also about uh, kind of uh, how photos capture specific moments uh, in the past and you know, um, how they also summon all the feelings and experience of when that photo was taken. So, um, but the time of the photo that's described in this is, it's it's actually panoptic, right? So there's many different possible scenes and, uh, and thus that weird word, should you, you know. Um, I'm hoping that in a minute we can, the, all five of us, um, find some of the time stamps in the poem. I, I heard a World War II one. Uh, we could go on and on, but I'd like to do that. Uh, but first, uh, Tyrone and then Billy Joe, let's get to find. So there's something about discerning, finding, locating, um, seeing, identifying. Tyrone, what do you do? This is a poem about finding a me. Well, on that point, um, one of the things I thought about this poem, and by the way, I should say that I believe I have... I'm the only one with this particular version of the chapter. Can you describe it? I mean, what is it? Is it a Belladonna? All Should Belladonna. you describe it? it how would you? Early... It's a Belladonna uh, book, but it's a different version of. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't matter because the, the, what I thought about should you find me is particularly in relationship to the entire chapbook. Um, I, you know, someone who doesn't want to be found, someone who's in hiding, or if you will, you know, sort of focus on the future. And that this notion of being found seems to suggest, speaking of photos, a, a kind of entrapment. I mean, that's particularly if you read through the poem, it, it suggests that um, the, the poet or the narrator is concerned about the sort of uh, framing containment uh, that would occur once um, once found. Mm -hmm. Billy Joe, you want to pick that up? Yeah, I'm thinking about the me is you know, like there are lots of different ways we can define the me as we've talked about but one thing the you know you could define the me as a as a writer and i think this passage which i particularly like is would i recognize my name in the voice calling from the burning bush so that throughout there's this sort of um playfulness and and feeling you know, not not a powerful being. So you have the whole image of the burning bush, and there's this. Then there is, would I hold my breath and hope it wasn't me? So there's that wonderful sort of like, you know, this is this, uh, in the tradition this big thing, the burning bush calling you out, and you know, you know, am I going to, am I go going to be sort of shy? Am I going to pretend it's not me? But then. And if it isn't me, who else will carry the tune? Oh my I gosh. find that incredible in yeah. terms of, okay, you know, I got some really powerful stuff to say. To paraphrase is truly a sin in a, a poem like this, but 
It's my job oh. sometimes to ask. <laughs> I see. And since Eric is he, well, you began to, you began to paraphrase that stanza, but I wonder if maybe we can start with Erica, which is re- this is a double sin asking the poet to paraphrase. Um, I'll start us off and tell me if I'm getting it wrong. Um, at first, I wonder if this visionary ecstatic moment, I would even recognize myself as being included in it. But then if I did, I think I'd like to dodge it. And then another option, which is so profound, I turn over to you now, Erica, if it isn't me, then who else is going to carry the tune? There's a kind of an acceptance of you're the one, you're the one who has to <laughs> It's an be the image you just used. <laughs> um, well, the burning bush is a reference, obviously, to Moses and the burning bush. And if we recall that story, Moses was very ambivalent about answering because this is a supernatural occurrence and his name is being called from the bush and he has to really think it over because he's actually trying to hide out. We have lots of voices, poets, right? We, you know, we're constantly absorbing the language and, you know, vernacular and choices and so forth. And this is about the choice to step up or not, Mm -hmm. to be found or not. And in a world which is quite a mess, you know, it's like messy (laughs) to step up. Um, And the world depicted in the poem is is messy, you know. Mm -hmm. This really is about the Erica Hunt who or the 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 self that moves through this family uh, and identifies herself as someone who came from somewhere and has to do something in response. Is that an overreading of the way this burning bush stanza works to sort of encourage this person to step up and do stuff in the world that Erica just described as needing help? You're asking me if that's an overreading? <laughs> <laughs> I am actually. I am. We've been through this before. <laughs> well, to quote from Arcade, people make, and it's intriguing that that's in quotation parts. And why don't you mention what Arcade is? Uh, it's a, <laughs> it's a book, by an amazing Hunt, book from Kelsey Street Press with uh, a collaborative project with uh, Alison Sarr. Uh, beautiful artwork all the way through. But anyway, people make the people around them, and they write to write the reader out of retreat. Now that's just the first part of a sentence. It goes on from there. But uh, again, you know, had we had time to do many lectures, lectures, I was going to go on <laughs> about the gaze and, and you know, the, the whole question of subjectivity by being seen by others and seen by oneself and so forth. But there's a calling out. You use the term calling out, not in the contemporary sense of, you know, calling people out because of whatever they've just done, but in the sense of the, um, the call that a Levinas or, or a Fanon might talk about. Um, the bush calls to you, you ask it what its name is, it asks you things, it asks things of you, and so forth and so on. So um, one of the intriguing things about Letters to the Future is in Erica's introduction, she talks about the futurity of any writing, which is true, not just a poetry, but any writing at all has that property of futurity attached to it. So we are constantly being called into ourselves and into our future by being recognized, by being called uh, by others. Um, Although when you find yourself being called by a seemingly inanimate object, I think you're in a different territory. Mm. <laughs> um, Tyrone, right after that crisis, we get a really powerful stanza that begins, if, if you should find me, would I have to relearn my own name? Talk to the letters in the alphabet one by one, my new best friends. Uh, it may or may not follow. These may not be sequential stanzas. But if it is sequential... What's happening there now? What's, there's something about memory, which is an important part of this whole book going on. 
Um, and we didn't use the word invisibility earlier, but we're, I, I think the speaker is struggling with how visible to be and what are mm-hmm. the dangers of being very visible so that God could call you out as the one who's going to save everybody. Take that anywhere, Tyrone. Uh, okay. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, again, the way I read that particular line, like the way I read this particular poem is um, this sense of starting over you know you have the narrator will have to start over um become someone else in the same way that we become someone else once we take on new responsibilities which is also a part of at least my version of the poem um, this notion of taking on toward the end new responsibilities if you should find me new responsibilities but find me too still weeks away from vacation um in other words once found you have obligations. Once found, you have responsibilities. Once found, you have to do for others. Mm -hmm. And so there's this struggle between this sense of, not just in terms of family, but in terms of other obligations, work, um, and and others too. Uh, What Tyrone said I found very moving because I keep thinking about this person. This is the last poem in a book about someone's family history and a, mostly a matrilinear set of stories and so f- should you find me is specifically about a f- an old photograph of oneself and so if you put that together with Tyrone's comment it would be at that moment of needing to accept responsibility having gone back to get the matrilineage set up for yourself and then find that you have to relearn your name it's a powerful moment can you describe that moment um, I can describe the conditions under which I wrote this this <laughs> chapbook, which was that um, I had two children, um, a partner, who's here, it's great, Marty, um, a job that went on for 50, 60 hours a week, um, in which, you know, the mission was to catatalyze black community social change and transformation. Um, the 21st, and century, 21st Project. century Foundation, and it was to raise a lot of money. And I was also a poet. So all these things were going on simultaneously. As a, as a black woman who um, grew up working class and found herself middle class, I felt like I had to do three times what I need, you know, uh, to basically uh, just, uh, just to be and just to actually do justice and um, to honor the people who brought me here. And uh, the, this family history, the pictures that are in this chapbook are the people who brought me here. And I then realized that looking into their composed faces, there was all, there was just the same level of work, energy, stress, resilience going on that w- I was currently feeling. So this poem is in some ways um, uh, you know, yes, it, the you is both the reader and it's also me. And where am I in this? How am I a poet still in all of that? How do I find myself? Yeah. How do I find that? In my own writing. And so there's that, you know, uh, tremendous kind of, uh, you know, challenge of uh, saying um, I can step into being a writer because all these folks brought me here to be to be that writer you know that's that's what they all were working for they saw it and they didn't know they were seeing it so but that's what I'm obliged to be so should you find me that 
tense of should is um, indicates the consequence of an imagined event, and they, I am its consequence. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Erica and then Billy Joe, uh, the title of the chapbook and also the title of a, a memoiristic poem in the book is Time Slips Right Before the Eyes. In a way, the title is a gloss of the poem we're talking about, or the poem that we're talking about is a gloss on the title. We could have done a poem talk about that phrase. Hmm. There's a great book right now by the name of uh, Listening to Pictures. It's by the black uh, uh, photography historian, Tina Kampft. In a way, what I was trying to do in this book was to listen to the pictures. These are old family pictures. And so I was trying to see if I could see something beyond the surface pose. And so it's how to, you know, uh, to begin to sense some of the life um, behind some of these formal pictures. So time slips. There's a slipperiness to it, but there's also a desire to sort of also um, get to some level of immersion or understanding, legibility mm. of the people and of the experiences mm. behind those photos. Since we have the poet here, yes, this photograph is at the bottom is you and a brother or not oh, no. at all? It's, no, it's not, not the photo at all. In the poem. Earlier generation. I Very earlier, earlier generation. generation. Earlier, okay. much earlier. The These, photo in the poem isn't in the book. <laughs> yeah, the photo, there's no photo of me in this. These are all uh, pictures pretty much from the beginning of the 20th century okay. of um, of various relatives, some of whom I don't even know because the people who could identify them are gone. So, um, but it was trying to uh, get to um, some reading of them. We're, we're slipping into the, uh, the book, but time slips right before the eyes. The past is imperfect, thus story. And that seems to do a, a, a great deal. You're looking at these photographs and, and how are you interpreting these photographs and you're interpreting them, you're creating stories about mm -hmm. them. Yes, yes. And the first line of that great poem, she said, did I ever tell you this story? Which, you know, oh, yeah. raise your hand if an elder or a, a, a living ancestor uh, uh, has ever said to you, have I told you this story before? <laughs> <laughs> something, re something really important there. So, Erica, this, this part is about forgetting. A story that tells and forgets. Not the storyteller, but the story itself. Somebody want to talk about memory and forgetting? There's a line back in the first book that is intriguing in this uh, respect because Erica wrote, it is never impossible to find the perfect official photo. So the photos and the stories are going to come to a future imperfect one way or another. Yeah. Even if the, you know, who knows if these stories are, John Edgar Whiteman titled the book, All the Stories Are True. Yes. Uh, so the coming together of the photo and the story produces new stories, new images, uh, which have the truth of the family memory, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah. Erica, the third stanza is the most, oh, for lack of a better word, socially expansive. This is the <laughs> one that gets into the world that we're worried about. I wondered if you could reread that stanza, and then I'll ask Tyrone, Alden, and Billy Joe each just to say something briefly about it. It's a powerful stanza. Yes. Where would you find me? At the top of residential grids? in the teardowns and the private cul-de-sacs? 
or at the bottom, in the nameless streets, among pavement dwellers tapping into the futility lines for brown out power. Who wants to start? You want to riff on that, Tyrone? Well, so my riff would be to read the version, which is quite different in this. Oh, really? Oh, yes. So here's that version. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Which is a kind of answer to that version. Where would you find me between the residential grids, in the teardowns, the private cul-de-sacs, security chamber handcuffs, sound, zeroes in on a day in a life, but whose life? In the mall's mall patrolled by car-bearing youth, or in abandoned villages, smoking ruins patrolled by Uzi-bearing youth. So that's a little bit different than the line. And it ends, well, some of this ends up in the next stanza in this one. Right. right. Where are we? What does it have to do with looking at a family photo? I'm intrigued. I was not necessarily thinking of this poem, or these poems, this particular poem, I should say, not only in terms of family, personal family, but rather in the larger, mm-hmm. if you will, family of African-American uh, culture, um, and particularly that stanza paragraph. And the way it has been changed and expanded makes it even more clear that this is about where do you find, how do you find yourself in the, in the midst of this world? Yeah, uh, that's, I think absolutely. And, and that seems to me, uh, very, you know, a large a part of this too, because I'm really interested in this question of, in terms of Erica's work and relationship, to, in the way that it, um, it, it is and is not a part of quote unquote uh, traditional African American culture and letters, uh, and of course, particularly poetry. Alden, what about that well, third stanza and its social landscape? Yeah, well. Uh, Context is everything. When I'm not teaching at Penn State, I live someplace where futility lines cause fires, mm-hmm. uh, where we have Santa blackouts Barbara, California. Uh, yeah. and brownouts. Mm-hmm. But I also live in a place where there was a brown power movement, mm-hmm. <laughs> very much modeled on the black power movement, which I also find sort of echoing a- a- around in there. And you know, I don't want to take up too much time with that, but you know, to me, uh, when we talk about social geography, we're talking about the history of these movements as well. What became of them? How how much utility did they have? How much futility did they have? And so forth. Um, but also, as a scholar, I know that uh, both bibliographers and map makers used to do a curious thing. Map makers would put a cul-de-sac on a map that didn't exist. And the reason they did that was if you copied that map without permission, they could spot their cul-de-sac, <laughs> the same thing. Well, many of us kind of historically live in these seemingly non-existent cul-de-sacs. Maybe I think this way because I lived on a cul-de-sac when I was a high school student. Um, in the earlier version, the Uzis are in this stanza. Is that mm-hmm, what I just heard? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You were asking about timestamps and so forth. That's one of the only really clear timestamps in the whole thing because it's an Israeli-manufactured uh, uh, weapon. So... You know, some of this gives us the feeling of being in the Caribbean. Some of us gives us the feeling mm-hmm. of being a large eastern city. Uh, but if, like me, you live in California, it's it's familiar in a very immediate it's way. Today, it's yeah. different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Except for the Uzi part. Yeah. yeah. Billy Joe, thought seems, on that? Yeah, yeah I do. But for the thought, it seems like when this is put up somewhere, both versions should be put up on 
With Erica's permission. With Erica's, without. Because she did revise it for a reason, probably so that this one wouldn't be talked about too much. I'm not. Well, thanks, Al. I appreciate that. (laughs) No, but Tyrone, our job is to do the literary historical work right right in front of the poet. Right, right, right. right. Lawsuit or not. (laughs) So then I should just stand up and leave because I'm going to become irrelevant. Please don't. We need you to do the introduction. But yeah, the, the first thing, it is the current world, you know, uh, whether you can call it black world or not. Uh, when um, Alden brought up Brown, is interesting because Brown is repeated twice. In the first stanza, oddly, knocking Brown against green hills, and you wonder what that Brown is. Brown hills, Brown what? And then, and then Brown comes up again, and lines for brown out power and it certainly must play with black power absolutely so uh yeah that's all that's good (laughs) i'm glad we paused for that um erica i wanted to ask you about this uh and i'm going to set it up with the following there's a there's a there is a tradition usually at the end of texts in this case the last poem sometimes in the last paragraph of a novel a good or a bad novel uh, at the very end of Song of Myself, you get a moment where the speaker says, look, I'm everywhere, I'm ubiquitous, I'm radical, I'm going to change things. If you want to find me, so that's Whitman, of course, doing something very different. And there's no scene like the third stanza in Song of Myself, to say the least. Another example, and this is even whiter than that, this is um, John Steinbeck at the end of his communist, visionary, romantic, gloopy right book about tom Jode, and he says to ma at the end look it's you know i've i finally figured out who i am class consciousness and so forth and if you want me ma says what's going to happen to you and he says well i'm going to be in every time a kid laughs i'm going to be there i'm in the voice of the kid and when the bird is flying in the tree i'm in that bird and this is so different. It's some, somewhat similar. I feel the ubiquity of your self-discovery or the self-discovery of the speaker of this chapbook saying, should you find me, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in the nameless streets, and I'm, in, I'm not even sure what my name is when I'm there. And so there's this powerful ubiquity, but it's also very different. And that third stanza is the clue for me of being, it's not Walt Whitman at the end of song myself. How would you like to respond to that? <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> should you respond? So should I respond? Well, um, I would say there there is a um, there is a kind of manic plenitude that's going on, but I do think it's a high and low. The residential grids are the high, the uh, pavement dwellers are the low. Um, some, uh, they're without. It's it's it is about uh, the gaps of wealth, the gaps of um, opportunity. It's about. Um, you know, the polarization of the world. It's, and there's a piece, there is something, you know, I sort of, you know, I read and I said, well, what did I mean by this poem? You know, I had to reconstruct my state of mind. And I realized that there is some kind of dystopia that one has to choose to face, you know. And it's the voice of, well, am I going to face the disparities in opportunity and wealth and um, justice? 
um, thus the contrasting image, the residential grids, the pavement dwellers, the, the security chambers, handcuffed soundless zeros. I mean, that's pretty grim. That's to have been, you know, caught up by the state and ca your future canceled. It literally says that. Or in the mall where, you know, happy time, I have a credit card. That's, that's the other contrasting panopticon choice. We live in a world in which both of those things exist. And to be in the world, to be conscious, you know, and not shut down, but to be conscious is a choice. And it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, you have to rouse yourself to do it, you know, because it's easier to kind of let it gloss over. So there, I paint the dystopia in the first half uh, of, of, I think, in the first half of this poem, and it changes to a more utopian but chaotic beginning, a new beginning, as I think Alden or um, someone, met, oh, Tyrone mentioned about relearning my own name, which is that beginning from scratch, you know, and not with any um, guarantee or surety. Tyrone. <laughs> I just, so what that's interesting because again, I want to read from my now irrelevant version <laughs> of this, uh, the way it ends in a, a much more, shall we say, uh, negative way to a certain extent. And also for me, it looks, definitely looks forward to um, uh, Veronica uh, Sweet and X Parts. These times are brittle and we are frail, even as we cup hands over eyes, our mouths, our ears. You know, see no, hear no evil, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to do is go around, all the way around, so we'll have to be brief twice. The first time I'd like to th ask each of us to toss out some kind of historical marker that gives us a sense of time, timestamp. And the reason I think that's important is this strikes me as a very powerful poem about uh, multi-generational considerations uh, and about history. And it's pretty subtle. It's not overtly historical document, but there are some, there are some hints to the various times we're talking about. So I wonder if we would just start with Alden. What's a what's a, a hint about a time here? I already gave I gave away the Uzi one. <laughs> um, well, here's another one that'll that may not uh, have the same kind of personal connections to others that it does for me. Um, in the uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, I believe it's the eighth stanza at the end. There's a reference. You have to see this to get it, because what you hear is the beat to its sugar, but it's B-E-E-T. And of course, you might also hear B-E-A-T in that context. Um, sugar beets might be coming back a little bit now, but they were huge in the United States in the mid-20th century, particularly following the revolution in Cuba. Uh, there was literally no reason for anybody to be making beet sugar anymore, given the economics of sugar production in the mid-20th century. But once we threw an embargo on Cuba, suddenly there was this big boost to the sugar beet industry. Well, I, as a child, I happened to live near a sugar beet factory with railroads and everything and the smells and so forth and so on. So I remember sugar beets. Um, I don't spend time in organic food places. Are people using sugar beets again now? Do you know? I don't think so. I don't think so. But that, that really gives it that That's a great time example. before, say, 1958 or so. That is a great example. Tyrone. In my version... You're really pushing this. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, you start. I open the door. <laughs> exactly. It's the King James star bystander. Right. <laughs> so I'll just read this stanza. If you should find me, need I carry a sign with me to explain my place under the circumstances? 
my arrival by car in my time travel dress with a Peter Pan collar. There you go. Dodge Dart background. Grinning, one. Right, wow. grinning for the company in the next century. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, I've got one. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. The, the rationing. Birthdays shouldn't be rationed. Um, we need new shoes. We need to replace perpetual war footing. That feels, it could be a Korean War scene, but it's more likely rationing is World War II. And so that's, that's, that's what Erica or the speaker is thinking about after really going back through all the family documents and thinking about really deprivation times two. So if you're already a, a family that experiences precarity and then, and then there's rationing and a war footing, it becomes that much harder. And it's, a, it's not an overt reference to it, but it is one. Billy Joe, you got a timestamp? Yes, they've already have been said the residential uh, grids. That's that's contemporary. Uh, malls. Um, that's really more like seventies than than now, yeah. uh, because they're gone now. <laughs> Erica, the security chamber, handcuffed, soundless zeros maximum, cancellations of futurity. So that's the Iraq War. And, yeah, um, sure is. Yeah. Okay, so we, we have a chance now for final thoughts uh, from each of you. Uh, one thing that you came to this session, and some of you came long distances, all of you, all, all four of you did, uh, something you wanted to say but haven't had a chance yet. Alden, a final thought? <laughs> well, I'll just go back to the very final words of this and, and the first words that I started out with, uh, having to do with you know the way we mark time, the way we uh, try to understand time, and eventually understand that time is, in fact, a, a creation of, of our own language. Um, and at the end of this poem, she talks about a pa pause, punctuation uh, in the moment, um, punctuation being that invisible marking that still has to do with time, caesura, and so forth and so on. Um, photographs are kind of punctuated in a way, and they punctuate our memories and, and so forth. So I found that a really, whether it was the original last word or not, <laughs> it is punctuation at the moment. I also wanted to just say one last thing. To change religious frames, there's this great old gospel song, I told Jesus be all right if he changed my name. And that whole question, the worst thing you can do to someone is call them out their name. And without ever hearing a name in this poem, the question of the, of the yeah. naming and renaming keeps coming up again and That's again. That's great. Thank you. Tyrone, you ready for a final thought? Well, if I if we were if we had more time to talk about another poem from the chapbook, uh, it would be the poem "Into Deep," which ends and it's the last line of this uh, poem that struck me when I first read it. Only a noose, so permanent ink in the score, only a noose could be so tight, and that has to do with the, with the one thing we didn't talk about is the question of music in um, the role that it plays mm. along, you know, throughout the chapbook and so forth. Great, I'm glad you brought that up. Billy Joe, final thought? A uh, final thought about this poem, the book, and, and Veronica is how um, Erica's making, making language strange and sometimes sort of uh, very mundane, like residential grids get, it, you know, get uh, pulled into it. So, so I've been thinking a lot about Erica and language, and in the afterward um, uh, to Veronica, uh, Evie Shockley uh, says that she tangles uh, with language, as her work always has. From its opening lines, for instance, it demonstrates how stretchy, 
how sticky uh, pronouns can be. I think you can move it uh, from pronouns to the language. And I love that you know, she uses stretchy, sticky, which I like better than make it strange. Yeah, that's great, Bill Joe. Thank you. Erica Hunt, final thought on your own poem? <laughs> uh, so I'm so glad we discussed this poem because it um, uh, brought me back to revisit what exactly generated the poem um, and to think um, in some ways a turning point to decide to step into something, to step into a role, or mm. step into the calling. Um, should you find me? Yeah, I, I got found or found myself, it found me. Um, how I got here and yet I was found and pulled, compelled to write more. So thank That's you for lovely. thank you for the time you've spent with the poem. It's been great. Um, my 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 final thought has to do with another poem which I'm simply recommending in this chapbook. It's Mood Librarian, which mm. is in many parts. I'm just going to read three of the parts. Mood Librarian, Part Sixteen. Birds purpose the air, as you purpose pen and paper. Uh, Fifty two. And, and this is one of Erica's many, many talents as a poet is to mess up and to reverse cause and effect. So 52, wake the stone, call back the atoms. And 55, which I think is about writing as well. 55, broken glass subsumed into the bottle, which is another one of those. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, a chance for us to spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Who's ready to gather some paradise? You forgot we were going to do this? Oh, you want to recommend that? Uh, yeah. Go ahead, please. Billy Joe. Yeah, I certainly forgot, but that wasn't <laughs> <laughs> How many times have we done this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... Um, I really recommend, and I've read it, uh, Veronica, A Suite and X Parts. I thought it was cool, and I thought it was 10 parts. <laughs> but, uh, and something about she and Fred Moten just reads out loud, just beautifully, power, powerfully. And something we talk about, Erica, being a politically engaged poet, and something that comes across in, in these particular poems is... Um, uh, a black mother um, um, mourning for or lamenting the death of, of so many uh, young black men, uh, often by police. And it, it, it just haunts, it haunts the book. Thank you for that recommendation. Tyrone, gather some paradise. Um, sorry, I was paying attention to <laughs> You were thinking about Georgia. that one, yeah. Right, he has a different version of paradise. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to let him forget exactly, it. Exactly, no. <laughs> Are you kidding? Um, well, I can tell you one book I've been reading lately that I really like is uh, Jill Maggie's new book from Nightboat uh, Speech. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very interesting, very good. I, I That's like it great. A lot. Great recommendation. Oh, Thank mm -hmm. you. You pulled that one out. Uh, Alan <laughs> Nielsen. Billy uh, Joe's taking my books away. Oh, take it. Oh, no. You, I, well, no I, we, I didn't want to we, embarrass we you. Already, so I was we already it. recommended we, the collected poems of Lorenzo right. Look, We've uh, never had a poem talk like this. But, yeah, it's uh, totally uh, breaking uh, apart uh, at the seams. Maybe there will be my no more live ones. My powers of moderation have completely failed. I do have no. one, though, though. Uh, this is why you should always go to poetry readings by poets you've never heard of. Uh, uh, last February, I was in Brooklyn for the book to read at the Book City Festival, and I stayed over an extra day. I went down to the Bowery Poetry Club to see what was happening with poets I'd never 
never heard of. And I was really struck by the work of Lauren Russell, who lives in Pittsburgh right now. And she has this wonderful book called What's Hanging on the Hush. I never knew how to pronounce the name of the press, Asata or something like that, which apparently may disappear soon. So do get this book, What's Hanging on the Hush. It is a beautiful piece of work, touching on many of the subjects that we were touching on today by a new new poet. Great recommendation. Erica Hunt, final thought. No, we've already done final thoughts. <laughs> Gathering paradise. You're losing it. I'm losing it. <laughs> right. Uh, so my friend says that I'm crushing. Um, I'm crushing on Ann Boyer right now um, and her essay, No, um, which I like a lot. So I'm crushing on her. But I, I've also been teaching Saidiya Hartman's um, Wayward Lives, and uh, I highly recommend the, that as well. So Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Gathering Paradise is... I'm gathering the paradisal work of this person sitting to my left, uh, Tyrone Williams. This is a book called As Is, or I guess we can say As Ease, As Ease, As Ease, As Is, A-S-I-Z. It's fantastic. And I just thought I would, and I'm crushing on three or four poems in this book, and I've got one called Tao that I wonder if you would read as my gathering. Yeah, would you? Dow. Out here, the affluenza of crude salt airs out a spread of trade wind humors. The drone of an ambient language, flash firefight, the power staked, an antecedent modifier. Speak English, prepare to be boarded, to come aboard all hope. That's great. And so it's as is, and it's published by Omnidon. Well, that's all the voices from the burning bush we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundations.org. Thanks so much to my guests. Here's your chance, everybody. Tyrone Williams, Billy Joe Harris, Alan Nielsen, Erica Hunt, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and Madeline Song. Is Madeline still back there? And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, Jacob Edmund, who will have come all the way from New Zealand, and Sonia Pazmentier and Huda Fakradin will join me to talk about Kamau Brathwaite's amazing poem, Negus. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us again for that or another episode of Poem Talk, and thank you to our live audience. Mm-hmm.